Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Way, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Way wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, uh, this is I Don't Mean to Scare You, a new podcast about scary things where I talk to experts to try to figure out what we should be afraid of. Today's guest is the same guest that I had last time, Dr. Amish Adalja. Dr. Adalja, how's it going? It's going well. I probably will be more scary this time than the last. So we recorded the last episode, the first episode about a month ago. Since then, uh, COVID-19 has really taken off in the United States. We've got about 3,000 or more cases here right now. Is that correct? Yes, but you need to multiply that by at least 10 because we are unable to test. And Even today, I had a problem trying to test a patient uh, just a couple of hours ago. So we really know that that's a major underestimate in the United States. And why is that? Why is it so hard for us to get the COVID tests going in the U.S.? Well, there's been a lot of foul-ups from the beginning uh, initially, you know, CDC using not using a WHO test, then all testing being funneled through the CDC, then the CDC distributing that test to the state health labs, and there was a flaw in it, so they couldn't actually do the testing. Increased uh, regulatory issues that created a problem for some of our big national lab chains like LabCorp and Quest to get their tests on uh, online as well as big hospital systems. And now you have big hospital systems have made their own tests, but they're also controlling who gets tested, who doesn't, because there's a lot of Suspicion that they don't want to find mild cases because it creates a cascading uh, bureaucratic problem operationally for many hospitals. So they're really guarding who gets tested or not. So it's still difficult, even though it's much easier than it was. Uh, It's still not optimal, not like ordering an HIV test. It's counterintuitive, though, because the more people who are tested and the more mild cases that show up gives us a better, clearer picture of how bad or how widespread this virus is, and it helps us figure out mitigation strategies, right? So is that correct? It it does. But then one of the things right now is that the CDC guidance is really prescribing what you need to do to healthcare workers that were exposed based on a lot of guidance that people don't necessarily think is applicable to this virus. So if you don't, if you're exposed, you're actually told to quarantine for 14 days to make sure that you don't have symptoms. But that can be paralyzing for a hospital that might have multiple persons on their staff, that some of who are crucial, like infectious disease doctors or critical care doctors and nurses. They can't work now because they've been exposed. So sometimes if it's a mild case and you're not going to do anything different for for it, the administration might say, let's just not test this patient. And we kind of all know that the person has it, but we don't want to deal with an exposure. And based on the guidelines, we're going to have to furlough all these employees and that's going to be bureaucratically a mess. So until those guidance, the guidance changes, people may have the same constraint. And certain states are starting to change the guidance and move away from CDC guidance and develop their own, uh, including the state of Washington and the state of Oregon. So since we last spoke... You seem very, even more media trained than last time. You've got a lot of really great answers to all the questions. I'm going to ask you questions from our tweeters. And uh, before I do, I just kind of want to ask two general questions. Number one, how do we all, non-clinicians, non-healthcare workers, um, lay people, how do we all remain calm while also being prepared for what's to come? So this is the biggest 
problem that I've had dealing with the media and trying to to parse this out because it's it's hard to do. So if I'm a doctor talking to an individual patient or, or dealing with your late night scares uh, every Yes, night, I'm quite neurotic and I have a lot of questions and now I'm imparting them onto my 22 listeners. But go on. What I would say is your chances of dying from this if you're a healthy person that's not elderly, doesn't have any medical problems, is extremely low. It's less than 1%. So you'll probably do fine. You're going to have a cold. It might be more severe than the colds you've had. You might be out for a couple of days, but you'll do fine. And there's no reason to worry for your personal health. I'm but not, if you're talking I'm not to worried about my personal health. I'm not worried about my personal health. I'm worried okay. about society well, me, collapsing out of fear. Okay. So that's one thing that you have to say to a person. And then the next thing is that when you're talking to a mayor or to a governor or to a hospital administrator or a CEO of a big company, you're going to say something a little bit different. You're going to say, this is going to be very disruptive. There are going to be a lot of people sick. Our hospital capacity is going to be stretched to the limit. And we may have to make really hard decisions. And we have to start planning now because this is not something that is going to be able to be taken lightly or that we're going to get through without uh, any special actions being taken. So those are two very different messages. So if you're in the public and you hear that, it, it, it doesn't necessarily always fit. But it's it's just two different contexts. So when but you're you just so I so you just said that, and it's very helpful for business people to know CEOs. But as a non CEO, well, you know, whatever. As a, I mean, I'm I'm the CEO of Cunt Productions, which is my production company. But I really don't have many employees. So as a layperson hearing that, it 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 sounds pretty scary. Um, which I understand that, you know, you have to tailor your message to different populations, but I think because of social media and the fact that we're all online and we're listening to everything and there's a lot of information, a lot of misinformation, there is a lot of panic. Um, and I think a lot of people do know that, you know, if you're healthy, you might not get really sick from it. But right now I have an ex of mine is actually, his wife just tested positive for COVID-19 in Brooklyn. And then my someone else close in my family is kind of sick, a healthy person physically. Um, but, you know, it, it is worrisome because even if they don't end up really getting sick, how much do we know about like the pathology of this coronavirus? Like, can you have symptoms? Can you be terminally sick? Can Like I, I read somewhere, I mean, there I can get into like the more... Um, my new questions, but one of the questions is like, if you get this and you recovered, do you have symptoms for a long time? Is your lung capacity reduced? Do you know, uh, do we know anything about that? Well, we do know a lot about how severe pneumonia behaves and how respiratory failure behaves. So most people are not going to have any restriction in their lung capacity because most people are going to have mild cases and not need to be hospitalized. But those that are hospitalized, especially those that are put, put in an ICU on a ventilator or have respiratory failure, they may have decreased lung capacity uh, for some time because of the destruction that the virus and the immune system will do to their lungs. So for most people, the answer is no. But if you have critical illness because of this virus, yes. And that's the, that's the case not just for, for this, but with influenza or any other respiratory virus or any type of pneumonia that lands you in the ICU on a ventilator, that there is a recovery period that may be up to at least a year before you get back to your normal quality of life if you end yourself end up in an ICU. Okay, I'm going to just quick fire off some questions. Some are from Twitter. They're not, remember how last time we were trying to be a little bit lighthearted? I'm not, the, nothing about this is going to be lighthearted. I just want to, I just want honest kind of, 
quick answers, you know, if there is nuance, shed light on that. But I, I also don't want people to, people are already bored. You know, I'm, I'm trying my best to disseminate accurate information, but, you know, people need comedy to care sometimes. So sorry, everybody. Um, okay, quick questions. First question, just so people don't think I'm an asshole. How do we help the most vulnerable people right now? Like, are there things that we can do without getting them sick? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, right now we need to direct messaging to individuals who are in those risk groups. So above age 60, medical comorbidities, and tell them that this is about you being Just able to social home. distance yourself. Stay as home. Much as, you, as much as you can, try and avoid non-essential travel. And I think if you're somebody that maybe lives in the neighborhood, you can try and help out with some of the, the errands and chores that they may have to do so that they don't have to expose themselves as much to other people. And that might be with grocery shopping or doing other things that would put them in at, at higher risk. And I think that's sort of what we have to do. We have to really tailor this message to that age group and that cohort that's going to have increased susceptibility to the severe complications of this infection. Okay. Now, here's a question. Can you spread it if you have no temperature, if you don't even know you have it? Let's talk about silent carriers. What? What? is that about? So there's been a lot of talk about this and some, there's been a lot of anecdotal reports. Some have been debunked and some have not been debunked. What I can say is this, that in the past, we've not thought of coronaviruses as being a class of viruses that spread before you have symptoms, the way influenza can do, can do uh, in certain, in certain um, circumstances. But with this outbreak, what we've seen are some people have, high amounts of virus in their nasal passages before they have symptoms. And you can culture that virus and grow it. So that looks like there's viable virus before symptoms appear. But that doesn't necessarily equate to transmission because we have to then know how is that virus getting from one person to another. So obviously, coughs and sneezes are what's happening. But if you're not coughing and sneezing, maybe that viral load doesn't actually get out unless you're doing something that allows someone to be exposed to your nasal mucus. So, so there likely is a possibility of that, tra that transmission, but we don't know it. And then there's other studies looking at how quickly people get sick after being exposed. And, and that might have to do with the incubation period being shorter in some individuals. And, and you think that it's pre-symptomatic transmission, but it's, it's really not uh, pre-symptomatic transmission. So I think there's a lot of answers that need, to be, uh, uh, that need to be forthcoming on all of this, but it's all research questions and, and a little bit hard. And we don't know what transmission percentage is by this type, this type of transmission versus the coughs and sneezes that we know transmitted, but it's, it's an open area of research. Hypothetically, if a little girl at some bougie gourmet grocery store yesterday coughed on me, how long would it take, and she had COVID-19, how long would it take for me to become contagious? The average time would be, it would be six days of an incubation period. So I, I think about six days or so, maybe at day five, you might start to, to have virus in your in your no, nasal passages. But this is going to be variable from person to person, and we don't know all the answers to this, and we don't know when the virus appears in your nose if it's actually going to get to other people unless they're in your nose. Should we blow our nose before bed? Somebody said we should like not pick our noses and that we should blow our noses before bed and gargle like salt water or Listerine. I don't know that there's any evidence about doing that. You probably, you shouldn't pick your nose, obviously, unless you're going to wash your hand right afterwards and not touch anything. Okay. Um, our kids, I know I kind of asked this, but I just want to 
make sure, could children be silent carriers right now? Is that a possibility? We do know children have mild disease, and we do know in other respiratory viral infections like influenza, children can magnify an outbreak uh, because so many of them have mild to little symptoms and then can infect a lot of different people. We don't know what the role of children is in coronavirus epidemiology. We know they get infected. We know they have mild disease. Uh, They likely are contagious, but how contagious are they and how responsible are they for the forward transmission uh, is not completely known at this time, which is behind some of the controversy that we're seeing over school closure because we don't know whether or not this will be very impactful because we don't quite understand children's role in the epidemiology of coronavirus. I'm picturing roving bands of teens just shooting snot rockets on elderly people and contributing to social chaos. Is that irrational? Uh, yeah, I think it's irrational. I, I'm, I've seen children, do, I've seen teenagers do that with the snot rockets, but, but now actually, they're deadly. It would, it would be actually be a crime, yes, if they did that. It would be biological terrorism. Exactly. But who's going to arrest them? The rest of us are going to be dead. No, I don't think that's the case. Okay. You don't, okay. No, the rest of us aren't going to be dead. I, no, remember, the vast I know. Majority I was just trying, I was being hyperbolic because just for comic relief, I'm sorry. Okay. Is there, now I know we've talked about this and I want you to entertain me a little bit. I know that you are a medical professional and that nothing you say on this podcast, even though you're giving us as accurate medical advice as you can, I still just want you to, you know, suspend your disbelief and think about this. Is there any like homemade surgical mask that could be remotely viable? Like there were, there were videos of people in Wuhan putting like um, plastic water jugs on top of their heads. Like, is there any way that we can, um, and and obviously with space to breathe at the bottom, but is there any way in case we don't have surgical masks and we don't want to either like be contagious or contract anything? Is there any like at home way to just try to, you know, or if you have to leave your house with a kid with a stuffy nose and you know that your kid doesn't have anything, just putting a bandana on them. Like, is there any, anything that we can do to just try to like slightly limit the spread? If there, if so a couple, a couple of things you have to say here is, first of all, the, the general public who is not sick should not be buying surgical masks. They shouldn't be putting masks on We know that. We know that. But it's like, you know. But we, we don't know that because there are people still wearing them. But there was also there. an article in The Guardian that just said that that forty that a surgical mask on a flight like reduces your chances of getting it by 40%. It was in The Guardian I, like last week. Yeah, I don't think there's any way you can quantify that. And it's not, I don't, I don't uh, b- believe it. Wow. Uh, the, okay. Yeah, no, I if agree you are with sick. you. I if should... you are sick, though, you should have you should surgical you should mask yourself if you have to go out. But if you, you don't have a surgical mask, there are two well, questions. You, you can, there, there are ways to get you can. So if you're suppose you you're, you feel sick and you want to go to the doctor's office, you can go drive your car to the doctor's office and someone will meet you and give you a surgical mask before you go in. So there are ways to do it with a proper surgical mask. I do think that if you know in these dire circumstances, if you if you have to go out. You should find some way to cover your mouth if you so you don't expose yourself to others. So, uh, like, you, even though it's not a surgical mask, a tight-fitting scarf or like a something fashioned into something where you can breathe is better than nothing. If you are a sick person, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be for the general public to do that. If you're a sick person and you have to go out, that's one way to do it is to try and find something that covers your mouth or your nose. Granted okay. that it's not going to be as effective as a surgical mask in most circumstances. And I know that the messaging the messaging is really important, but it is one of those things where when and I, I totally get the logic of why of why you need to not stockpile surgical masks and have them available for healthcare workers and people on the front lines. That said, when the public hears 
don't stockpile surgical masks because uh, medical professionals need them. The public here is stockpile surgical masks. I mean, it's totally, it's just human nature. People, I think, uh, especially like doomsday preppers and neurotic people. Who well, I, one of one of my friends is an ICU nurse in the state of Washington, and she just put this big post on Facebook because she's taking care of those patients. And she said people are stealing surgical masks from the hospital. Yeah, I mean, I bet they are. And they're, and they're having they're having equipment shortages, and I think that's what this panic is doing is that people are, are not realizing the consequences of their actions. I mean, it's but because, it, but it's also it's obviously starting from the top down. Like if you you want to talk about any airports yesterday, I mean, Trump's travel ban um, in and out of Europe made huge um, messes at uh, Dallas and um, Chicago Hare, and I think uh, one of the I forget which airport in Florida, but do you think that, that I know we don't need to talk about, um, legislative, um, issues right now, but do you think that that is going to really contribute to the spread of the virus? All those people jam packed at customs waiting for hours to try to get through. I do think it's a, it's a mixed message. If you're really emphasizing social distancing as the president has been over the last couple of days and then creating an issue where social distancing is impossible at the Customs and Border Patrol entry points because of the chaos of a travel ban that's unnecessary and not going to be impactful, uh, it really needs to be revisited. And if you're going to do that, those people need to not be put in harm's way. Yeah. Can now can people be reinfected? It's unclear. So we know from the other seasonal coronaviruses that people can get those more than once and your antibodies do wear off. But usually the second infection is very, very mild. So this is something that we need to study and understand. But for most part, most people believe that you cannot get seriously infected a second time. You may get infected and it doesn't cause any symptoms like other coronaviruses, but that's another open research question. And, and I wouldn't make much of the people who test negative and then test positive because sometimes the, the test testing is toggle. weird. Yeah. Okay. So when they talk about social distancing, a friend today, she and her uh, husband, yeah, they're married, wanted to watch the debates with Josh and I. Is that, should we not do that? Like when you talk about social distancing, do you mean like we should not even hang out with in, in groups of two other friends? You have to look at these things in a, in a context and think about your health and what your risk factors are for severe disease. I wouldn't hang out with anybody that's sick or has any kind of symptoms right now, but I don't think that small groups, as long as you keep people away from you that are sick and and you use common sense, are fine. Social distancing is difficult, and what's essential for someone is not essential for other people, and there are costs to it, psychological costs. People feel isolated. People don't feel – there's a lot you have to take into account. So I do think you just have to be smart about it, especially if you're someone who doesn't have – risk factors. And I don't think that uh, people should completely, you have to think about your own quality of life. And I don't think there's any hard and fast rule about doing that. Obviously, mass gatherings are different. um, But uh, I think for casual types of things like that, you can look at that on a case by case basis and and make a decision on what you want to do. Is it safe to go to the grocery store or should we just be getting stuff delivered if we can help it? If you can get it delivered, it's probably better right now just to keep yourself away from people if you if that's the type of social distancing you want to do but it's i think it's fine to go to the grocery store you might want to go on off hours when it's not as busy if that's uh, a possibility i don't think those exist anymore in this current moment at least not in la it seems like they're pretty packed at all hours um what about like you know i i heard that 
pets, if they pets could technically get coronavirus, dogs can get it from if their owners are really sick. There were just two articles that came out in the past couple of days. Um, this is a question from a friend. Is it like safe to walk your dog? Could your dog get coronavirus from another dog? Like how this is a very L.A. Um, stupid question. I'm sorry, but it is a question a lot of people are thinking about. What do you say to that? Coronaviruses can infect all kinds of animals, and they can infect dogs. It's unclear that dogs actually get sick from this. They just might have the virus, and it's unclear if they're able to transmit it back to humans or to other dogs. I wouldn't worry too much about it, but if you are sick uh, while you're sick and you're, you're self-isolating yourself from, from humans, you should also self-isolate yourself from other pets, especially mammals. Going, like going to the park or going on a run, is that okay? Yes. Even going to like Prospect Park where there are like a lot of crowded people around, just like you just have to be, what if somebody sneezes and then the, the wind blows their sneeze in your face? I think it's fine. These, these droplets don't go that far. Six feet or so is fine. I, I don't think people should stop exercising or stop doing that type of thing. You just have to be careful and lots of, lots of common sense. This isn't, this isn't a Chinese style lockdown or it's not something from the movie Contagion. We don't need to, to go to that level. You just have to be smart about it. I think like, there's extremes, you know, like I was driving through Pittsburgh yesterday on my way to the hospital and it's St. Patrick's Day and Pittsburgh, all the bars were completely packed. That's probably not very advantageous uh, to do and will likely lead to transmission events. Uh, but just doing something simple like running in the park is not that type of, uh, type I heard of an activity a, that I would really care that much about. I heard a rumor from a couple people and I this is just a rumor so nobody panic but I did hear that Los Angeles there's a chance it might be going into lockdown within like 24 to 72 hours. Who did you hear the rumor from? I can't tell you because I Was it the mayor? It was somebody The governor connected to a government official. Do you think it's just rumor mongering? I do think that the United States is not likely to see Chinese style lockdowns. People are using the words a little bit Loosely, we may see shutdowns in certain places, and there's a lot of us in, in the field that are trying to emphasize that it's lockdowns, no, but maybe partial shutdowns of certain things. It's like, just a softer way to say lockdown so people don't freak out. No, it's not because shutdown. It, so they're saying like stores and restaurants will be shut down, but people are, are allowed to leave their homes. Lockdown right, means so, you're not allowed to leave your house. Exactly, and that okay. there's armed guards and things that happened in China where there was suppression of free speech, where people were going door to door and pulling you out and sticking you in a stadium. Yeah, that was really. No, scary. I don't think that that's not going to happen here. What we may see are shutdowns, uh, similar to what we're seeing. And for example, I, I was on the NCAA panel that had to deal with the March Madness tournament, and we canceled it. Uh, so that type of thing might happen. Hum- okay, is that a humble brag a little bit? No, I'm just using an example. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I just... Uh... So there's, t- there's, there's tons of things that are happening like that, like the NBA season or the NHL, the NHL season. That type of thing might happen. Uh, and we're hearing in the state of Ohio, for example, that they are going to force restaurants and bars to only be takeout uh, in Ohio. So there is something, some stuff like that. That's pretty drastic what's happening in Ohio. Does, but, co- co- does COVID-19 like stay on food? Should you microwave, if you get delivery, should you microwave your food for a minute? And would that like kill anything on it? Or is that just crazy? If your food needs to be microwaved because it's gotten cold on the delivery, I would probably microwave it for, for to make it taste better. But no, I wouldn't do it for coronavirus reasons. So unless somebody like sneezes on your salad, otherwise like hot you, food. Then, then you probably shouldn't microwave it. You should just probably not eat it if someone sneezed on your But you salad. wouldn't know if they sneezed on your salad. But I guess my point is like it's safe. Delivery is safer, right? As long as like you don't the – like the, the food handler – this seems so – 
insensitive. But, you know, what are there precautions that you should take if you order delivery? No, I wouldn't take any precautions. Remember, people have to make food professionally, and you're uh-huh. more likely to get E. coli and, and die from kidney failure from E. coli in your salad and cool. from your romaine lettuce than you Thank are to get you. coronavirus from your lettuce. All right. So, so they, they should be they should be preparing food. Norm food needs to be taken care of properly, even in, in irrespective of coronavirus. There's so many things that can kill you in food. Yeah, there's so many things that can kill you. Um, okay, so th- there are two things that I read, and I don't want to be fake news, but one is that Italy's mortality is about seven point three percent. Um, which is a lot higher, which is like double what the mortality or triple what it was in Wuhan where the outbreak originated. Can you talk to that? So we're trying to figure this out. It's an active area of research. And what I would what I would say is that there's a couple of things. Italy is the oldest country in the world. The average age is, is much older. And when you look at the Italian data, the average age of death is over 80. The average age of sickness is over 60. So this is an old outbreak there. And we know that uh, that demographic does much worse. The other thing is that it's really concentrated in the Lombardy region of Italy, and there are some restrictions on moving patients with COVID out of those ICUs to other ICUs not in the region. They're not allowing that. So that is creating a a shortage type of situation in that that region where those doctors are left there with limited resources, and they're having to make horrible decisions about life or death and going to what we call crisis standards of care where they're making decisions based on age and other things, whether or not someone can be put on a ventilator and when they can be taken off a ventilator. And I think that this is some of it, this might be a result of a policy there to contain it. Um, And it's unclear how representative what's going on there is, but it's what's driving most of the world to be scared about this virus because of the Italian experience. But it's very different, the Italian experience that people talk about versus the South Korean experience where the case case fatality ratio is closer to 0.8. And that might be more more the real case fatality ratio, might be the South Korean one. Interesting. Also, do you think it's probably not a good idea to kiss people on the cheeks? Is that correct? To do what to the cheeks? Kiss, do the, the kissing, the double kissing on the cheeks? Two oh, kisses. double kissing on the she- uh, cheeks. Yeah, right now we probably shouldn't be doing that routinely to strangers. Well, it could be, yeah. I mean, that, that, might, that might probably be one of the reasons transmission is higher in Italy. Cause of no, I, like- I don't think it would probably, I think it's more than that. Um, okay, and then I heard something about in France that the 50% of people contracting it were under 50 is that fake news? I forget where I read that. I, I, I haven't heard that specifically. We know that younger people can get infected. Everybody's susceptible to this. Okay. And they're likely to have mild cases. I also heard that ibuprofen is bad, but Tylenol's good. That the anti-inflammatory... Right. I saw that report too. It's unclear to me whether or not that's what the evidence behind that is. I'd like to look at the data uh, for it, but... Uh, I haven't seen anything specific to that. I think if something needs to be followed up, I don't know what what the the rationale behind that is. But but every drug has side effects, and, and certain drugs could, could interact differently with this virus. But I think it's not something I have seen any great data on. Now, I'm sorry for this question in advance. It's not for me. But a friend wants to know if you can get it via semen, COVID-19. No. no. This, is not, this is not a sexually transmitted infection. How is it that... But, okay. But... So you could literally just have somebody with COVID come on you if everybody's wearing surgical. Okay, why, why are you getting into <laughs> I'm this? I'm sorry. I'm just trying to ask real questions people are asking. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This... No, it's not a sexually transmitted infection, period. 
Okay. So unless Fine. somebody is sneezing, unless somebody's don't get mad at me. I'm sorry. Sneezing, unless it, unless their sexual activity involves sneezing and coughing on people, probably not. Okay. Back the to certain body fluid infectious disease. Certain body fluids have the infection in them. Certain ones do not. Just like this isn't spread through sweat. If somebody, okay, okay. If somebody in a family tests positive, how do they protect the rest of their family from getting it? They should self-isolate themselves as as best they can. Uh, And that may mean that some people go stay somewhere else while they're recovering, or those people go and stay somewhere else. And for example, in the state of Washington, they've they've taken over a motel there where they're able to put people, if they can't can't properly self-isolate at home because of other people living there, that they can go stay in the motel and recover. How do you properly self-isolate at home? You stay at home. Basically. Well, with somebody else there, like two different, if you have two bathrooms, one person just uses one yeah, bathroom. Yeah, there may be some people who have a house with two levels, for example, or two, or, or appropriate ways to, to keep yourself separate. But if you can't, you have to kind of make other arrangements until and, the other per, unless the other person is already sick. And then like people are freaking out over antibacterial uh stuff, but like, um, Purell is no better than soap and water or is it, or is it worse? They're both fine. They're both fine. Um, now I heard that like a pulse ox- oximeter is a good thing to have in case you're sick at home just to know, um, when you should go to the ER if your like blood oxygen level drops below 92. Is that a weird thing to talk about? I don't think that people need to buy a pulse oximeter because if your blood if your blood oxygen is falling, you're going to know it. You're going to be short of breath. So people who become short of breath need to be evaluated by a medical professional, period. I wouldn't rely on a pulse ox because then people can have a pulse ox that might be normal, but they're so, but they're so short of breath because that might lag. So uh, that could give people a false sense of security. So I don't recommend Uh-oh. people have a pulse ox at home for this. It's just I- if you are short of breath, you need to go to be seen. Okay. Well, what if there are just so many people being seen and you're like taking care of yourself or someone else at home and you want to just like not have to overload the healthcare system? Isn't it good to kind of just like have a thermometer at home and maybe like a pulse oximeter at home just to kind of like keep an eye on everything? And then if it gets to a certain level, then that's when you call the ER? There, by the time it gets to that level, that person's already going to be have been short of breath for some time. It's Remember, it's... You can be short of breath without having without having hypoxia or what, or what the pulse oximeter is going to show a low reading. So I just wouldn't. I don't think there's any harm in doing it, but I think that you need to interpret that number in context and look at the actual person and if they are short of breath, if they're having a hard time, if they can't complete sentences, if they have an unremitting then fever, they, if, if they then they gotta go. Okay, okay. Yes. I was just I'm just trying to think about ways to like not inundate the hospitals if you kind of if we all just kind of become like you know medical. I don't know. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. The, right. the overall point, though, is that the overall point is if if it were if it, but for not COVID, if you wouldn't gone to the hospital, you probably don't need to go. So if you have the sniffles and you wouldn't have went normally, you don't need to go to the hospital. But okay. if you if you have those, only go to the hospital if you really need to go to the hospital. Yes, and call ahead, and so that they know, so you know what the procedure is, because there might be a separate entrance you need to come in. They may mask you, uh, that type of thing. And same thing for doctors' offices, emergency departments, and urgent care centers. Um, to close friends in, in New York, is it probably a good idea to get out of New York City right now in big cities? I mean, L.A. is like pretty sprawling, so I think we're fine here. But to my friends living in like big apartment buildings in New York, is it probably if they have a place to go, should they just kind of get out of Dodge? No, I don't think that we want people to have mass movements because I could actually paradoxically spread it to more areas if there are people that. Well, that, that is the, that is the medical profession. That is the, the responsible 
answer. And that's how we saw, for example, with HIV, that that, that moved from the cities to the rural areas. So I think it, it, there's a tendency to think to do that, but sometimes that can be paradoxically worse uh, because some of the smaller rural areas that people move to may not be well-resourced enough, and you're now going to add to their burden that they already yeah. are going to have anyway. All right. What's your future outlook on this? How, when do you think things will, quote-unquote, get back to normal? I think we're going to know in the next two weeks or so how well any of the social distancing has occurred, has, uh, what, what it's resulted in, and we'll also have some idea what the trajectory of our cases are. Uh, right now, we're not seeing or hearing about major ICU bed shortages or, or, or lots of hospitals with ICU patients with, uh, with COVID-19. I think that we'll give it some time. We're a little bit behind the outbreak in Europe, so we will start to see that or hear about it if it's going to occur shortly. I think we will also see a major surge in cases as the number of test kits is increased and it becomes easier to test. I think that we're going to probably likely have several weeks of increased transmission before we might hopefully hit a peak when we and this virus hopefully exhibits some seasonality and then we get a break during the summer. Um, and then I likely will come back uh, pretty um, vigorously in the fall on top of a flu season. So I do think that this is going to be with us uh, for some time until we have a vaccine. And I do think that probably over the span of a year, maybe up to 50% of the population or more might get infected with this virus because there's no population immunity, most of whom are going to have mild illness. But because so many people are going to get infected, the burden on the healthcare system is going to be very high. And that's going to be what, what the main issue is, is trying to keep, the, keep below the hospital capacity, being able to manage the patient's without exceeding capacity. And that's what all the social distancing is about. I can hear the tiredness in your voice of how many times people have asked you that question. Um, I want to just, a, a couple Twitter questions. Uh, somebody wants to know the r not value of COVID-19. I think you're still trying to figure it out, right? If you look at South Korea, it's a lot different than in Italy. So that's, what, what are your, what, what's a quick answer to that? I would say right now it's it's important to know like when people think about R naughts, it's not something magical about a virus. It has to do with the virus and the person. Because think of the R naught of typhoid Mary, much much higher than most people who had typhoid fever. So the R naught has to do with your behavior, and I think it's better to think of the R naught in three bunches. And for those who don't know what an R naught is, an R naught is how many other people you infect if you get it. So if you infect one other person, the R naught is one. So I think of it, you know, there's diseases that the R0 is less than one. You infect less than one person. So that might be e Ebola in most instances. You don't infect that many people. And if it's less than one, it's not going to do anything. Uh, tetanus is an R0 of zero. You don't infect anybody else if you get tetanus. Then you've got the other extreme, like r naughts of 12 to 15. There it's like measles and whooping cough. And those things are spreading very rapidly, very hard to control, and they're extremely contagious. And then there's kind of that middle range, I think, of like r naughts between two and four. And that's where this thing falls. More likely in the two to three range, maybe the mid twos, around the influenza, uh, around influenza's level. But remember, there's no population immunity, so this virus can find more ready, readily accessible hosts than than influenza can, because there is population immunity. We have a vaccine, et cetera, and people have had past infections with similar viruses. So the R naught is around in the two to three range, and I don't spend much time wondering if it's two point four or two point eight, because it really doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah, that woman in South Korea in that religious church, she like infected over a thousand people or something I just read. Um, but hopefully we're uninfecting thousands of people with, the, well, seven people with this podcast. One quick other question. Uh, I have a couple questions, but somebody wants to know, 
like if you wash your hands over the sink and you wash your hands over the dishes and you had a little bit of COVID on your hand and it falls onto the dish, you're fine, right? That's not, you're not putting illness on the dish. This is a, this is a comedian's question, but they're actually curious. What do you, what do you say to that? Can you Wait, spread? Aren't you, washing, aren't, you, aren't you washing the dish? So what's the point? I, I don't think it matters. But could you technically wash COVID off of your hand and onto something else? But but if you're washing the dish, the dish is getting washed too. So you're both getting washed. So Fine. I don't really Let's know just what say you is. washed your hand and could COVID splash from your hand onto something else? You would have to be coated with like wet mucus on your hand and washing your hands pretty It's got to be like a wet mucus. Good to know. I mean, okay. th- that, this, these types of questions are kind of They're not helpful. And you're because obs- that's not how that's not how this virus is getting around. The virus right. isn't like sitting there thinking, "I'm going to wait for a sloppy dishwasher." That's how I'm going to infect people. I mean, the virus it's, is getting around though, so I think people have all sorts of through coughs and sneezes, through coughs and sneezes, coughs and sneezes on surfaces that somebody else will touch that surface and then touch their face. Right, or something. but it's not not these. You can come up with all okay, kinds not of not the hypothetical. That don't gotcha. Make any sense. But look, I think it's important to you know you just shot down that question. That person's not going to have that question anymore, and now they're going to. Have Come a up better... with another ridiculous question. Yeah, well, we're comedians. We're very creative. You know, that's partly... Like if you're pumping gas and, and you, you put... You know, I'm sure there's going to be something like that. Well, yeah, if you're pumping gas and somebody just had, like, COVID snot on their hand and then on the handle and then you touch the handle, you just got to wash your hand, right? Or Yeah, wash your hands with gasoline. That'll get rid of it. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, yeah. Uh... So, okay. Some of the one question was just grim about five percent of eight billion people is a lot of graves to dig. That was a little. That was okay. I'm not going to go there. Um, when do you think is anyone close to uh, developing a vaccine? I, I've heard a lot of murmurings out of Israel and some other places. Um, you think the vaccine won't be available for a year? Yeah, a year or more. They're they're moving really quickly, but you still have to go through clinical trials, phase one, phase two, phase three. There is an Israeli company that's trying to repurpose a, a vaccine against a, a bird coronavirus, and that's interesting because that could be a little bit quicker, but I don't know if it's going to be substantially quicker. And I do think we have to be prepared to deal with this virus in its first waves without a vaccine. Do you think like a 38-year-old guy who smokes is at risk for contracting a you know more lethal version of corona versus somebody who doesn't smoke? Yes, I do think smoking plays a role, and people may think that there's some people who think that that's why there's this male predisposition because in certain countries it's much more common for males to smoke than females. Is that just that cigarettes? What about pot? What about somebody who smokes pot? So I was asked that in the Bill Maher pre-interview that I didn't do uh, the show for. That that's the only person that's ever asked me that question. Um, his everybody his in California smokes pot, so they want to know. So I, I do think any anything that's a respiratory tract irritant is going to make you any more likely respiratory that. tract tract irritant is going to make you more at risk for having a, a more complicated more course. complicated. We don't have specific course. data. We do it on specific data on coronavirus the way we do with tobacco smoking in terms of respiratory infections. But in general, anything that's irritating your respiratory tract is not good for your the immune system in your respiratory tract. The little hairs that are on your cells that help propel mucus around and, and trap viruses and trap pathogens, all of those things are going to get are not going to function as well when you're inhaling a toxic substance, whether it's marijuana or tobacco smoke. Uh, and so anything that you're inhaling or, or if you're inhaling hookah or smoking a pipe or whatever it might be, anything that's damaging your respiratory tract in that sense likely could make you at higher risk for a viral infection. And I can't quantify how much more. 
I'm trying really hard to stay away from political questions, but a lot of this is very, um, you know, uh, I think a lot of the chaos is because of who we have in the White House, you know, contradicting the CDC's recommendations. Um, do you, so, you know, our future outlook is that this is going to be going on for a little while. Um, when do you think life will be back to any version of normal, do you think we're, we're going to be having to self-isolate for like six weeks for, I know they're saying two weeks, but it seems like it will definitely be longer than that. Um, we're not flying at the moment. Um, you know, I don't know if, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I don't know how long the period is going to be. When you do this type of self-quarantine, you have to do it long enough to, to block the, the block the virus from infecting many people. And we don't really know where we are on our epidemic curve because our testing has been so fragmented. So we don't really know. And we're kind of doing it a little bit blind, but I do think that we'll have some indication that this works in two weeks. And, and we do know for certain social distancing, for example, schools, you have to close them for a long time to actually get any effect. And that's drawn from influenza data, which isn't the same as coronavirus data. So I don't know how long this is going to have to go on. I, I think that we're probably going to be making these types of decisions on a on a week by week basis, uh, based on what what we're seeing epidemiologically. Now there really is an interesting argument, and i i don't I, I don't want to quote Devin Nunes, but you know there are people saying that the economic strain on on uh, restaurant workers and on uh, freelance uh, workers and people who are housing insecure, economically insecure, the, the repercussions of people not being able to go back to business as usual ha will have a lot uh, more devastating impacts in some ways than the virus itself. Um, what are your thoughts on that? There is a real societal cost of social distancing, and it has to be balanced against the benefits. And sometimes it, these are completely these are really difficult decisions to make. And it is true that people who cannot there's some people who can't afford to self isolate or self quarantine or social distance because of their the economic implications. And there are many small businesses that are going to be hurt. And that's their livelihood, and that livelihood is what allows them to eat. And there are consequences to this, and I think they, they have to be taken into account. And you're seeing other countries, for example, England, take an opposite approach where they're not doing any of the social distancing for non-high-risk individuals. So there is a lot of there's a, a lot of people thinking about how long can you feasibly do social distancing and not irreparably damage your economy and damage the way of life of many people. And yeah, so the UK is also really interesting because I was supposed to do a two-week run of shows there starting tomorrow, and Boris Johnson is basically not closing down any theaters or anything. Do you think that, how is that society going to look? I mean, it, it seems almost satirical that they just kind of like want older people to die to alleviate the strain on the NHS. But what do you, do you think that once people just start falling on the street and dying, they're going to change their tune? Or what do you think is going to happen with that? It's important to know that it's not just Boris, Boris Johnson is following the recommendations of some very, very prominent infectious disease modelers. So it's, it's a little bit, uh, it's not just a political decision. He was being advised to do that. And they're trying something where they're going to try and cocoon away the high-risk individual groups, so those that are older have comorbidities from those younger groups and try to get herd immunity. And I don't know that that's going to be successful, and a lot of us think it's going to be very 
difficult to actually keep those compartments separate, meaning the people who are low risk from the high risk, because there's going to be so many interactions between those groups that I don't know how you can completely isolate one group from the other group like that and, and do that. And I think they're going to see increased cases, which they're predicting. And I, they'll, they may have to, they're going to have to constantly revisit that policy and see if it works. And it's going to be really challenging for them. It's so British of them, you know, to keep calm and carry on while just like a bunch of pensioners, which is the term for old people there, die. It's pretty, pretty crazy. What do you think is the better model? What I think is probably not the Chinese model, but more the South Korean model, where you're not using draconian lockdowns of cities, but you're doing aggressive case finding and isolating those individuals who are infected and, and letting them wait out their 14 days and, and, and be done with it. And, and testing everybody in sight, just test everybody you can. Testing anybody that has symptoms or is at risk or is that that's at risk for for infection and that maybe they come into contact with somebody that's got symptoms and, and isolating those individuals and making it as easily easy as possible for people to be tested. Good to know. Um, okay, I'm sure I'll have more questions and I'm I'm sure we will talk again soon. Um, do you do you regret talking to me? No. How has your other, like, you know, I know you are my favorite uh, pandemic media whore, as we call you jokingly, because you're doing such a public service and you have, it's so cool that you're on. Can I talk about how you are um, not exclusive to any network because you want to disseminate as much information as unbiasedly as you can? That's sure. Cool. I, 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 yeah, I don't, I don't want to limit. There's too much going on right now and there's too many audiences that are kind of fragmented. So I think the best thing is to be able to talk to everybody on every network. What about um, other comedians? That's what, I'm doing. what about other comedians on their podcasts? No, I'm exclusive to you. Thank you. And they would also try to be funny. I'm doing I'm I'm working really hard to be completely unfunny this entire episode just so we can get all the information out there. I wasn't trying to be funny about the semen. I just that was an honest question for my friend Atsuko Okatsuka. She's a comedian and we just Wanted to know. And I did a live stream with her yesterday. And we, it was, is that safe if I do another live stream if it's just me and her in a room? Is that safe? Repeat that last part. I, I didn't two people. Hear. I know we need to social distance, but if it's me and one other person in a room or two other people, we'll, we're pretty okay unless, unless any Yeah, I just, just make sure nobody's sick. Make it clear that nobody should come to things when And we sick made and- sure her grandma, we Skyped her grandma in. We're just any, and her grandma's in her 80s. So everyone, over like really 60, you kind of want to isolate and protect right now, correct? Yes, and and the, the, and it's not just us, not, not younger people that have to do that. Those older people need to know themselves because many of them are not doing it because they don't think it applies to them. So we need to speak directly to that age group and tell them that, that, that they have to take these actions. It's not just going to be kids not going to the bar for St. Patrick's Day. It's going to involve them adjusting their lives as well. And you think it'll get back because we're about like 3,000. You think we're at, you think we're at 3,000 times 10 cases in the U.S. right now. So we're at like 30,000. So you think it's going to get really bad in like a week from now? Yes. The case, I mean, in terms of the case count, and I think we may by that time start hearing about hospitals having issues. Okay. And I I think that's outside of the Seattle area. I'm going to sneeze and then I think we're going to wrap this up because you've been so nice. I don't want to take up any more time of yours. I didn't sneeze. I did not sneeze. All right. Dr. Dalja, any final thoughts, recommendations, words? 
just keep watching what happens. Don't panic and be proactive about it and, and use a lot of common sense. And help vulnerable people any way you can without getting near them. Yes. That, did that sound insensitive? No, without infecting them. Right. All right. We still haven't answered the question about children or people being silent carriers, but we don't really know the answer yet. So we'll know more soon and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, Dr. Dalja. Stay well, and I appreciate your time and intellect and experience and insight. Talk to you soon. All right.